Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the political party. There is less than a week until polling day in the 6th of May 2021 elections across Britain in Holyrood, the Senate, police and crime commissioner elections, metro mayor elections, city mayor elections and all sorts of other elections across Britain. Hopefully you're registered to vote. If you're registered to vote by post, you can, by the way, take your uh, ballot down to the polling station on polling day. If for whatever reason you think you've missed the post or you won't get it there in time. So uh, you can do that. Um, I'm just trying to get as many people to vote as possible. And hopefully this podcast has helped. And today's guest is Labour candidate for the Metro Mayor in the West Midlands, Liam Byrne. Of course, a former, well, currently the MP for Hodge Hill as well, former government minister under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, a leading member of Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet. We talk about all that before we come on to what I discussed with Liam Byrne. One of the greatest threads in global podcast history and indeed the present and hopefully the future is this thread on awkward places or strange places you've seen politicians or dared to talk to them uh pavatar man has been in touch now we've had a few it's always labor politicians for some reason about carwin jones neil kinnock stephen kinnock always specifically welsh labor politicians but email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Pavitar Mann has been in touch and said, I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Tony and Cherie Blair after being sat a few chairs down from them, watching Labour of Love in the West End, during which there were a few quips about Tony and his time in charge. I was always worried about whether I should laugh or not. Um, well, that is very difficult. I went to see that play. I loved it. It's by the wonderful James Graham, who's been a, uh, a guest on this show. Um, uh, Labour of Love um, featured Martin Freeman. It was brilliant. Tamsin Grieg as well. It was really good history of the Labour Party. Um, and was I think the, the MP represented somewhere in North Knotts because there was a forest scarf on stage as well. So, Pavatar, you, you brought back a lot of wonderful memories from me. But that, I mean, these are, we're all we're talking big dogs that people have met here. Tony Blair, Neil Kinnock. Um, so that must have been a bit weird, seeing Tony Blair in the audience of a play in which there is video footage of it. Uh, and not knowing how to react. So if you have seen a politician in a strange place and indeed approach them, what I mean, has it ever gone badly? Have you ever had a car crash moment with a with a, with a politician? Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And of course, talking about seeing Labour of Love in the West End, this show is coming to the West End with two nights at the Garrick Theatre. One of them has already sold out. So thank you um, to those of you that bought tickets to that. To reassure you, the uh, the audiences are socially distanced, the venues are COVID secure, and um, it's all being done, obviously, 
um, within government guidelines. So um, the second date with Keir Starmer and Andrea Ledson was sold out. The first date is the 24th of May at the Garrick Theatre with Peter Mandelson and Saida Varsi. Tickets for that are flying out the door, as are tickets for the 2nd of June with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. They're three amazing nights. The first two, I realise I've given you this information all over the place, the 24th and the 25th of May. So that's Peter Mandelson, Saida Varsi, then Keir Starmer and Andrea Ledson are at the Garrick Theatre. 2nd of June with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh is at the Vaudeville Theatre, all in the West End, all very exciting. Please come along. You can get tickets for that. I've put the link in the blurb, or you can just go to mattford.com slash live to get tickets. On to today's show with Liam Byrne, who is a phenomenal guest. And I remember meeting Liam um, when he was, when Labour were in government and he was a government minister. He was minister for the West Midlands when I met him. Really impressive, uh, really deep, and big thinker, really analytical brain, and has really thought about uh, where Labour needs to be. And we talk about that. This isn't just a conversation about what's going on in the West Midlands, although it's a really good um, conversation about his uh, campaign and whether he's going to win, and if so, how he's going to, you know, what is the architecture of that victory? How is he going to get there and get over the line? Labour lost last time. Andy Street is the current um, mayor for the West Midlands. He was on the show uh, a few months ago. He's running again. And uh, I don't want to read it. There's a a nice moment at the end of this, which is, uh, you know, I guess what this show is all about. Uh, But this is a brilliant conversation with Liam, not just about this campaign, although there's some really interesting and insightful stuff about this campaign and about the West Midlands and the politics of the West Midlands and how he manages that, but also his time in government and uh, (laughs) and where the Labour Party has been since then. He was elected in 2004, Labour ejected from office in 2010, they haven't been back since. And obviously, the, these are years where he's been in his political prime. Now, we have politicians of all ages, of course, and that is a very, very good thing. So Liam Byrne has a lot of road left. Um, but we do talk about that, about being in government and then losing a general election and, you know, many a good year spent in opposition, wasted in effect. And, and, and about where the Labour Party is now and where he senses it is and where Labour members are. Are they prepared Um to do the difficult soul searching required and change course in order to win the next general election. But before the next general election, of course, there are elections on the 6th of May. That's in a few days time. And I began um, by asking Liam about the parallels between this campaign and another campaign he'd been involved in. Delighted to be joined by Liam Byrne, the Labour candidate for the West Midlands Metro Mayoralty, I guess, is the full title. Liam, you're in another Hello. incredible fight. You fought Birmingham Hodge Hill in 2004. That at the time was seen as something that was going to define the leader of the Labour Party's fate. And here you are again in another seismic exercise that may well help shape how well or not uh, the Labour leader is doing. Is there anything you learned from being in that ferocious by-election in 2004 that you can apply to this mayoral election in 2021? Uh, crack on and knock doors, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> it's sort of, in many ways, it is. You know, you do, you know, we, you learn everything on doorsteps, in, in, in my view. And, um, you know, the best, of, you know, as, as you'll remember, I mean, we, we, we won narrowly in a, in a fairly unedifying campaign in, in 2004. And, um, you know, uh, we've got the biggest parliamentary majority as the Labour team now in the West Midlands. Uh, and the secret is knocking doors, doing residence meetings, school gate surgeries. I remember 
when I was in, getting to Westminster and being a you know a sort of slightly disorientated sort of young man, and it was um, it was Siobhan Madonna actually who told me you know just just do coffee mornings, and so being you know the sort of obsessive person I am, I just I did like coffee mornings every week for like nine months, so I met almost the entire constituency. Um, but of course, once you're in that mode of of, of life. Um, you, you just really zero in on that. And I've done them pretty much every month for, for as long as I've been allowed over the last sort of 16, 17 years. And it's, it's, it's no accident that the majority is the majority it is now because, you, you know, people are clever. You learn everything just listening to people. I guess it's more from, you know, looking at you, uh, very few politicians get elected in by-elections and they are unique. It's not like... It's hard enough campaign. It's hard enough getting selected for a seat anywhere, then winning it. Fighting a by-election is something completely different. It's it's an alien experience compared to a general election. And then fighting for a mayoralty is something different as well. So I think it's really interesting that you found yourself in two quite unique fights in a way that most politicians will never go through one of those things. And by the end of this campaign, you'll have been through two of them. I mean, do, do, you, do you think you're uniquely suited to these... I'm, I'm, <laughs> big fights in a I've way only, i've only just realized this now you've pointed it out so <laughs> thank you <laughs> so i'm not sure if it's a thing but i don't know i'm just a i'm very lucky the team i've got around me we're a very you know we're very community focused we're we're very sort of street level sort of people really um and that's why we're doing what we're doing because we just got so knocked off with this bloody Tory marriage done nothing over the last four years and we've just watched things go from bad to worse. And so at the end of the day, for, 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 for many of us in Birmingham and the West Midlands, politics is community work in a different, just in a different mode, really. Um, we do see politics as an extension of community work because it's, a, you know, we're, we're a very, in many ways, we're a very close-knit community of communities in, in our patch. We're a very diverse place, but, you know, we most different parts of Birmingham, most different parts of the West Midlands. I mean, they've almost got village feels still, actually, where people kind of know each other well. So I'll, I'll have to think deeper about that analogy that you've drawn. <laughs> what, maybe it's just, I just thought it was, I'm probably completely wrong in trying to even, not that it's a narrative, but I just thought it's quite interesting that you find yourself, just as a person, in two kind of big, difficult fights in a career. I think, of, well, I do feel that a lot, I do feel I've spent most of the last five years campaigning. So I mean, it just never stopped. I mean, it has been, I mean, there's an interesting point here, which is that, you know, since uh, I, I feel, you know, I was, I was elected in the middle of a conflict. It was in the middle of the Iraq war. Um, you know, I, my ministerial career was defined by the crash and the last couple of years, this mayoral fight certainly has been defined by the contagion. And and the truth is that, you know, since the turn of the century, we are, we have been living in the age of the shockwave. Um, so conflict, crash, contagion, you know, these sort of global forces have been roiling our politics. And, and that's partly why politics is so important right now. I guess if I was to try and um, draw a conclusion, I would say, well, in politics, there are some people that dip their toe in. And they might stand for a council seat and then go, I'm never doing that again. You know, it's far too exposing even standing for the local council. There are some people that will go through a by-election experience and go, oh, my God, that was so intense. I never want to do that again. I guess what I, 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 the conclusion, I'm, I, I, the, the presumption was that actually you're a really tough person who can handle really difficult fights. And politics needs those people because 
I think that strength of character, particularly when politics is so severe, is quite rare. And I don't think the public appreciate how difficult it is to put yourself forward for any office. But I think by-elections are so hard. And I think these sorts of merit elections are so hard. It's so personal. It is. But, you know, the truth is politics is a rough trade. Um, And, you know, if you are going to survive in politics, you do need to grow the rhino skin, basically. And, you know, I've been in lots of fights over (laughs) over the last 17 or 18 years. It's the sort of fighting Irish in me, I suppose. But you do you, you do have to acquire the rhino skin in order to survive. But I think it's a lot harder now than it was. And it's a hell of a lot harder if you're a woman um or from an ethnic minority background because you know in 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 many ways you know i'm a middle-aged white guy so in in many ways in today's politics i have it easy compared to most other people who i work with in in the west midlands and that does affect who chooses to go into politics so i would i would not tell my kids to go into politics i would not advise them very different to my own parents you know my dad was just so you know made up when i became an mp and he was just sort of staggered that this kind of grandson of irish immigrants could become a cabinet minister that just all completely blew him away but i'm not i'm not sure i you know advise my kids to go into politics today because you know the the advent of social media just the the it's so toxic now politics and it is so polarized um it's a yeah you've really got to look before you leap these days i think yes but that's the problem is you can look and it can maybe look fine. No, no, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe that is the wrong thing to do. Maybe that is the wrong thing to do. Maybe you've just got to... One of his politics changes so fast that when you leapt, it might have looked okay. But by the time you're halfway down, someone has moved the pool or filled yeah. it full of sharks. Yeah. No, I think, well, as I say, it is, it, it's a very different environment to where, where it was sort of five or ten years ago. Um, but in a way, there's a, lot, there's a hell of a lot more at stake now these days because i just i do think that you know in all sorts of ways politics is becoming so polarized now you you do have these supremacists you know on on every sort of side of the fence and without good people trying to build the common ground and and actually plow a way forward with a strategic view of where the world is going um we're we're doomed (laughs) um which is the subject of my my forthcoming book on the road to dystopia (laughs) yes well i was going to ask about that which we'll we'll give it a juicy plug at the end um when's that out i don't know yet (laughs) i know so basically she's going to be livid my, my therapy during lockdown i mean you know you have to do something sort of you know very very early in the morning and very very late at night so my therapy has been to um to kind of pen this book, which is sort of coming in at about 110,000 words at the moment. And it tries to draw together a lot of the work I was doing on inclusive growth, um, on, you know, different sorts of economics, future of the social security system. Um, but the, the, the starting point, I think, is true, which is that we're under such pressure from extremism of all stripes at the moment that there's a real risk that what happens is that nations do begin to break apart. And the global commons, whether that is airspace, outer space, cyberspace, becomes a hell of a lot harder to um, to govern, to manage, to live in. And, you know, these are, you know, these are not the kind of mad fantasies of Liam Byrne. I mean, these are planning assumptions for most of the world's military. At the moment. That would have been a great title for the book, The Mad Fantasies of Liam Byrne. Mad Fantasies of Liam Byrne. Maybe that's the subtitle. Maybe that's the subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, say. I'll put it forward and we'll see what they say. And if they pick it up, you'll get your commission, Matt. 
Thank you. There's another challenge that's faced your generation of Labour politicians, and I think about this a lot, and it might not be the public's primary concern. In fact, I, I know that it's not. But you're elected in 2004, Labour win in 2005, and then they're out in 2010, and they haven't been back in since. You are a super bright individual, thinking about the world in these really creative and future-looking ways, as this, as this new book shows. And just as your political career is starting to bear fruit, Labour rejected from office and they go into the wilderness. I wonder just for you personally, and there'll be other people in that cohort as well, just how challenging that's been. You know, you, you were on a road at one point where you were going to put your services to the nation with really high office. And obviously you were able to do that for a period of time. But to then, in the prime of your life, effectively have that taken away. And I know, it, you know, politics is a rough business and everything. But that must be so disappointing to have not been back in government since, to have not been able to put yourself to, to the service of the nation in that way. Well, it's very nice of you to say that it, uh, the, the career was bearing fruit. It felt to me at the time like it was just sort of one thing after another. So, you know, I was kind of between the Home Office, down, 10 Downing Street and the Treasury, it really did feel like it was just one, you know, insurmountable, intractable set of problems after another that I was being asked to go and fix. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I suppose I had a, a kind of a background that programmed me to go and do this, you know, so, my, you know, my my mum and dad were in public life. Um, my mum was a teacher. Um, my dad was a council worker. And I think, you know, like many people who are in politics, um, you have an experience early on in life that kind of propels you in. Um, one of those experiences I realised, one I didn't realise at the time. So, you know, when my when my mum died when she was 52, so just about, you know, a year or two older than I am now, that is a pretty early lesson in life that you're not here forever and you need to crack on with what you think you're here to do. And if you think that's public service, then, you know, you just need to kind of get stuck in, really. Um, but, you know, after my dad died five years ago, I, you know, began really zeroing in on, um, you know, something that I'd, I'd hidden you know, from, from everybody, um, you know, which is that I, I'm the child of an alcoholic and, you know, I hadn't really focused on that. I hadn't really focused on what that does to you, but I, you know, I was in a pretty, pretty dark place after my dad died. And, um, I came to see that being the child of an alcoholic is a thing. And, and, you know, and many of the, many of the drives, many of the perfectionisms, many of the kind of much of the armor plating that I built for myself, every child of an alcoholic does that. Um, because you're and you're sort of programmed to sort of try and put the world to rights and when I sort of started talking about it for the first time in the commons um, you know I was a bit of a, a mess but the thing that really struck me afterwards that was was how many other MPs that and indeed peers earls in fact came up to me and said well yeah me too I'm also the child of an alcoholic so so there is definitely something about that um, kind of upbringing I suppose those kind of childhood experiences that um, that, that, that make you tough, um, make you fairly driven um, and inspire you to try and put the world to rights, I suppose, in your own little way. It's a weird thing with it because it's such a... a I can't imagine what you've been through with it and losing your mum so early as well. It's so difficult. And grief is something that I think as a society we don't really talk about in any proper way you just sort of it's just accepted as a fact of life and we all have to get on with it now maybe that'll change as people become um more, more thoughtful to each other perhaps but i just wonder as a politician it, it it 
puts you in a different place. And it must be so hard for you to balance the personal and the political, because as a politician, people look to you to talk about particular things. And it's good when politicians share those personal experiences. But does that bring its own pressures as well? You know, do you is the line between the person and the politician blurred in any way? Do you think actually, not that you've created a rod for your own back, because I'm sure you feel that you and, and you, you will do so much good for people. But sometimes you think actually, I'm bearing a lot of my soul here. I'm talking a lot about my personal experiences, and, and that can come at a personal cost. It, it was. It did feel like that at first. It's got an awful lot easier, and um, the. The thing that you just don't anticipate, because you know why? Why would you? Is is the people who then share their stories with you, and I found that really harrowing. Um, and I had a sort of similar experience last year when, in the wake of COVID, it became pretty clear to us quite early on in Birmingham that COVID was having a much bigger impact on the ethnic minority community than anybody else. And so I, you know, have a couple of friends here, like Paulette Hamilton and, and Sharon Thompson in Birmingham, who. I've worked with quite closely over the years and they said, well, look, this we've, we've got to set up an inquiry to try and get the stories behind the statistics. And that was really difficult. I mean, these stories of pain and, and the agony of love and loss, that really, really was harrowing. Um, but in, in a way, I think I'm, I'm grateful that at least public life is such now that we can talk about these things in public now. We can be... Um, more emotive and emotional in in the stories that we tell and if you if you're not moved by that um if you haven't got that sense of empathy then you shouldn't be in politics because you know there's that old i think it was de Hamel who sort of said about the fabians once upon a time it, you know they, they loved humanity it was just human beings they can't stand and and and, the, and the, you you can't you can't be in politics and, and, and unless you actually care and love human beings um, it, you know, if you don't, you're in the wrong business. It, politics is a people business. <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, I think, it, I think it's good that we can have, you know, not just sort of wonky policy discussions now where we're doing sort of graphs and numbers, but, you know, actually where we're talking about love and loss. You know, that's just, that's a better place, I think, for politics to be. I've heard you speak about being the son of an alcoholic before, and, and, and you said... When you're the child of an alcoholic, you're constantly trying to be the person who you think others want you to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a phrase that people often apply to politicians. So, in a way, I'm trying to sort of find a positive. Has it, did it help you develop as a person in a way that you think without well, that? It make, well, it makes, you very, it makes you very driven. And, you know, and the, and the truth is you do need to be pretty driven to... You know, to kind of crack on with politics. It was actually uh, so. Callum Best, who's George Best's son. I mean, he um, he he's an extraordinary individual, and he he actually he does a lot of work with us with the National Association of Children of Alcoholics. He's a bit of a hero to a lot of us. He he, you know, in many ways, he helped get the movement going. And he wrote a brilliant book called Second Best. Um, and it was it was Callum actually who helped me kind of understand this that you are always trying to. And be the person that other and so you're what but what that means is that you're constantly trying to calculate what okay what are others what, what do people want me to be here what do people and and that is incredibly draining and of course you end up setting these utterly impossible benchmarks for yourself which you then consistently fail to deliver and so you do um you you basically live in self-hatred because you are constantly feeling that you are failing you constantly feel you are failing 
Um, and, you know, as you get older, that becomes very, very damaging. And I didn't really understand those dynamics and certainly hadn't got a grip of those dynamics until, you know, I spent a lot of time in counselling after my dad had died. I, as I said, I got to a pretty pretty dangerous place um, and I had to spend a lot of time just kind of working on that stuff and working it out um, and then you know and that then led me to take a very different path forward in politics that's what then sort of took me to beginning to work with the homeless community in Birmingham that's when I began to meet people who were self-medicating trauma in exactly the same way my dad was he sort of slipped into alcoholism after my mum died um, and, you know, and that's when I started meeting people who were, you know, almost dying on the streets. And, and, and that rage, if you like, um, that here in the second city of the sixth richest economy on earth, we had people dying on the streets. That, you know, that's what then said, right, sod it, I'm going to stand for mayor. I'm going to take on this Tory mayor who's not doing anything. Um, so, yeah, so there you go. Is there still a legacy of that? I mean, I've, I've never had counselling myself, so I don't know how it feels to go through the sort of experience you've had and then and then talk about it and 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 for that to help in that way um but and you're doing that while you're a politician so you're, you're having counseling was this while you were in government no 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 this was this was after 2015 so okay but you know in, in a way i had the kind of space and time to do it and it was it was really really painful <laughs> really really painful i mean you you basically feel like you're juggling burning rocks basically um, while trying to climb a ladder, it's you know, it's um, it's quite quite difficult, <laughs> quite quite difficult set of challenges. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm grateful I was able to get that help, you know. And it it's 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 one of the things that we're trying to address in our you know plan for the West Midlands is to make access to mental health services much more widely available. And actually, when we brought Kia um, to Samwell College a few days ago, we we got half an hour to um, just do a quick workshop with some students there on, on politics. And, you know, my, my inner teacher, you know, compels me to sort of get the pen out and start sort of asking questions on the whiteboard. And we were asking the students, you know, what were their sort of top priorities for, um, for young people? Mental health, mental health support, top of the list by a mile, absolute mile. So it's a, it's a really big thing for Gen Z, you know, and Gen Z, you know, you may have heard me talk about, I mean, I just think they're the most in, incredible generation certainly the most the most entrepreneurial and collaborative generation we've had in the west midlands since the days of matthew bolton and james watt and the industrial revolution but you know they've had the rug pulled from under them at the moment but it, it was it was interesting that actually you know their number one priority even ahead of free university education you know by it was sort of twice as important as free university education that's how serious it is and is it, I, don't want to, I don't want to dwell on all the on all the sad stuff but is there still a legacy of that? You know that that idea that you set yourself targets that are that are unrealistic. Do you, is there still a part of that in you? Is there? I, I guess in a way, drive is a positive way to think of it. But but do do you still find yourself harboring some of those instincts? Definitely, yeah, afraid so. Definitely. My poor team. My team has to sort of pick it up. They have these sort of you know, no, we and and this is partly you know I was. Um, I was a comprehensive, I went to a failing, what was basically a failing comprehensive school, but I was sort of lucky enough to get a Fulbright scholarship to the Harvard Business School. And, you know, and that is kind of what they teach you at the Harvard Business School is how to set targets and deliver them. So that kind of, um, that old slogan of Hannibal, we will either find a way or make one. I mean, that that is very much the kind of ethos of our team, actually. 
Um, and we've been really good at that actually during lockdown, you know, we've managed to run a kind of a mayoral campaign during lockdown, which has been pretty extraordinary. Um, but no, I'm afraid so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we're pretty driven. Um, because, you know, when you, when you serve the most deprived constituency in Britain, you kind of sort of think, well, actually people are paying you to go to work and they, you know, they need someone to fight like tigers for them. So, yeah. And do you think, do you think it's, it's changed your perspective on life going through that experience with your dad? Has it? Yes, I think it has. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely has. I mean, it's, you know, I was a pretty hard bastard when I started in, um, in politics, which is why, you know, I was sent in to go and sort out the, the really difficult problems. So, you know, I was shipped into the Home Officers Minister for Police and Counterterrorism in the wake of um, Charles Clark and the foreign national prisoners debacle and yeah. John Reid declaring the Home Office not fit for purpose. You know, I then had two years to go and sort out the immigration system, rebuild the border agency. You know, that was that was unstraightforward to say the least. And then by that time, Gordon was in Downing Street, you know, they'd formed a circular firing squad in Downing Street in the first six months. That was not a happy story. So I was shipped into Downing Street to go and sort that out and then went to the treasury to go and do the deficit reduction plan. So it was, you know, so it was a kind of one fairly stiff challenge after another, but, um, but no, I mean, it, it's, it, it's made me um, a lot. It, it's made me very, it's, it, it, you know, going through that experience has, has definitely changed me. It's definitely changed me. And I'm a lot happier. I'm a lot happier as a result. And I'm a lot happier in the work that I'm doing. And it led me to focus on very different things. It led me to focus on the work, you know, what became called Operation Compassion, which was the work we were doing for, uh, for the homeless community and food banks. And the mayoral campaign basically grew out of that manifesto, which we call Radical Compassion, you know. So it's, it's, yeah, so it was a bit of a reset for me. You know, it was a bit of a reset. Those years you describe, uh, people remember it so clearly, John Reed and Charles Clark and then all that stuff. Um, and then you mentioned Gordon coming into number 10. And I remember what precipitated Tony Blair's departure from, from number 10 was a letter written by Tom Watson and others and, and signed. Quite a few of them were, were in the West Midlands. There was Tom Watson, Sean Simon, David Wright, Khalid Mahmood. And it felt like that's where this kind of <laughs> this plot had been had been incubated. Did they ever approach you to sign that letter? No, they knew they, 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 they knew me well enough <laughs> to know they wouldn't have gone very far. <laughs> they were very interesting times. I, I mean, I worked. They were very interesting. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, I mean, you, you know, <laughs> seeing the way things have gone since. And, you know, at the time, I was a member of party staff at the time, saying to people, you do this, you know, this crashes the car and you don't know if we're ever going to get back in. And uh, I just think the signatories to that letter must just, they must regret it. They must regret. I don't see how they can't. I mean, I, I've never really talked to them in any great detail about it. You think... Labour haven't been back since. And that was that's partly why. Well, I think I'm not sure about that because, you know, there was this global financial crisis that <laughs> was <laughs> unanticipated uh, by everyone from Alan Greenspan down. So, I mean, that is the point about politics. I mean, you just don't know what is around the corner, do you? Which is, um, which is why the character of leaders is so important because, you know, people, people like to elect people who can deal with the unexpected. So post 2010, then Labour in opposition, they haven't been yeah. back in government since. How frustrating was that for you with with your politics? You know, your, your centre left, you weren't getting involved in any of the um, shenanigans, and um, 
you want the Labour Party to be, you know, you're robust on things like immigration and uh, the economy and crime and things like that. And you see Labour start to drift under Ed Miliband into a place where the public are not really backing them anymore. I mean, was that was that a frustrating period for you, the Miliband years? Well, the whole 10 years has been frustrating because I've just said, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I live in Birmingham. I go, you know, I think there was one week, even when I was in the Treasury, there was only one week where I didn't go home on a Thursday night and do a, a full stint in the constituency on Friday and the weekend. Um, and, you know, I've just seen things go from from bad to worse. But I do think, you know, and this is, again, partly what inspired writing the book is, you know, the new the new Labour years in particular just did not grapple with this kind of exponential increase in inequality. Um, and, you know, the the institutions that we didn't create, you know, the some of the policies that we didn't create. You know, we we did not. You know, we we just about managed to hold inequality in check during the new Labour years, but we didn't reverse it, and we didn't build an engine for reversing it over the course of the long wave. Um, and that really has been that really has been the sort of philosophical policy and economic question that I've spent a lot of the last ten years thinking about. And you know, I worked on that here and I'm lucky enough to work on it internationally. So I chair the, the Global Parliamentary Network for the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Um, and we've put this question of uh, climate justice, but also um, reversing inequality at, at the centre stage of that work. And it's been interesting because actually you, you do now have heads of the IMF and the World Bank that now share that agenda too. I mean, it began under Christine Lagarde, but it's accelerated under the new regime. Um, so actually, you know, there is... A recognition now amongst Western policymakers that 30 years on from the fall of the Berlin Wall, we have created a level of inequality that is almost exponentially increasing, and which is incredibly dangerous now, not least because worlds which are very unequal are worlds which are very corrupt. And, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you're beginning to see the return of corruption and sleaze now. This is what happens when levels of inequality you know, continue to multiply. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So what, just in terms of what the, um, extra, you know, what, what, what that means for Labour and how Labour wins yeah. again and how does Labour get to a position where the country actually likes it and where the country thinks that Labour likes it too? Yeah. Um, what should Labour be saying on the economy then? Because people always say, well, of course you're the party of dealing with inequality. We get all that. That's all baked in. We know you love the NHS. We know you care about inequality. Don't Labour need to talk about the other stuff as well? And 
Why yeah. hasn't Labour been talking about the other stuff? Well, they do. And, and in a way, you know, what we've tried to do over the last 12 months in the West Midlands is, is, is really get stuck into that question. So how do you, what does, you know, the, the, the next political, what does Labour's political project need to look like now? I personally think tackling inequality is at the core of it. Um, and, and this is where I think there are two, there are two ideals that we find really empowering and inspirational for labour activists here. So one is um, what we have to do around climate, and, but the other is the kind of rediscovery of our soul. So on climate, if you look at what Biden is doing now, and certainly the research we did with residents in the West Midlands, People know that we've got to go green. It's all, green is almost like white heat now. It's the future, it's inevitable. We can see bits of it happening. What we found is that people were really worried about whether green was more expensive and whether we needed to recover first and then go green. And what we found is the dilemma dissolves when you talk about making the things the world needs to go green. So we deliberately, one of our core slogans, in fact, it's probably our most popular slogan, according to our Facebook analytics, you know, our most popular slogan is bring back industry. We will not only lead Green Britain, you know, become the first net zero carbon city region in Britain, but we'll do that in a way that entails bringing back industry, making the things that the world needs to go green. Because as people say to us, you know, that's how we trade our way back to health. So there is a story there, which is about reindustrialization and green industrialization that for the Labour Party, given our origins, given our roots, is of fundamental significance to our identity. But the flip side of that is this notion of Labour as the community party. So, you know, when we asked people, what's the silver lining from lockdown? What would you like to hold on to? Overwhelmingly, people said the resurgence in community spirit. Getting, they got people got to know their neighbours going out to clap on a Thursday night. Then they set up the WhatsApp groups and the Facebook groups for their street to make sure no one went hungry and lonely. But, you know, go to the food banks go on to the sort of, you know, the food delivery networks, they're all Labour activists in there. Now, I became really interested in this. And of course, when you then sort of track it back to the very origins of working class organisation, first co-ops or the first trade unions, you know, on their banners were the words of Isaiah about everyone looked after their brother and said to each other, be of good courage. You know, Clement Attlee, 1919, the first book he wrote, The Social Worker, about his work as a, as a, as a social worker and a youth organiser in East London. So this, this, this aspect of our identity as the community party is something we need to rediscover and be proud of. So I think what we've really found and, and kind of clarified for ourselves over the last year of researching and campaigning is... That, that soul of the Labour Party as the community party and a party that fights for reindustrialization allows us to square both the economic mission and the social origin of the party in a way that we think reconnects with voters. And frankly, you can tell that story inside 20 seconds on a doorstep. It's, it's been, that's been fascinating. But what about stuff like crime? Well, crime is very much... Um, uh, a dimension of the community identity. So we, um, people believe in robust approaches to crime. You know, I mean, Tony, you know, this is, you know, Tony Blair's great rise, of course, was, you know, uh, predicated on tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. But whenever you get into conversations about crime and the changing dynamics of gangs in particular at the moment, so at the moment, the advent of county lines 
and the basically the glorification of violence that you see inside social media have fundamentally changed the dynamics of gang violence in on our streets. Um, but people, so people will say, yes, you do need a tougher police response. You need more police on the streets, etc. But it, you know, in a beat or two, people click, but there's no youth work, is there? There's no youth centres, there's no youth workers. You know, our, probably our most popular specific pledge that we talk about is the place to put youth workers back in every neighbourhood because people know that, that that service has collapsed and they know what happens when you, when you cut things like that. So I think people are much clearer now about the value of community life and they know what it takes to protect communities and keep communities safe. They know what young people need um, in order to keep them safe from that. But the other thing that's been quite interesting is that people talk to us a lot about things like festivals and markets and parks and high streets, because what people want to feel is alive is community life around them. And there's that old saying that all politics is local. Well, now all politics is hyper-local. You know, for many people, their horizons are now reset, shrunk almost to the local park or the local parade of shops, you know, the, the, you know, the, the immediate streets outside them, around them. And, and people want those spaces to be happy and sociable. So there's, a, there's something really interesting that's gone on during lockdown, which is a really significant opportunity for Labour to, to grip and, and use it to help, you know, reinvent ourselves. Your pledge on youth workers is one of seven pledges you've got, which breaks the old rule of having five. I know. Well, it does, but there's seven boroughs. So, we, <laughs> so, so it's we, their fault. We explain it as seven pledges for seven boroughs. And is it just one pledge <laughs> per borough? Does one borough get the youth workers? No, no. We'll we we leave. We can we can afford to leave that to the voters imagination that's like what is it seven sons for seven daughters or something is that the old... for seven brothers man. that's it <laughs> i'm too young for that sort of stuff that's my defense anyway yeah. um so seven pledges and you're obviously trying to overturn a conservative victory last time yeah. last yeah. time labor's candidate was sean simon he ran a campaign that was basically take back control that didn't work a lot gets talked about how boris won in london and the donut targeting those outer boroughs what do you have to do to win in the west midlands are there certain areas you're trying to target above others well we thought about this quite a lot in the beginning of the campaign as you can imagine um and actually what we decided to do is is rather than target specific places we we are aiming at people who um we think will vote for us so many so the labor coalition is obviously you know labor's core voters people who vote for us come hell or high water um people who drifted away from us in december 19 um people who did vote for andy street last time around because they you know um <laughs> they actually thought that more people at the last election thought that the uh tory candidate was called john lewis than than andy street um and i have the polling data to prove that um, and then obviously... Um, that's true, or is that... Yes, yeah, no, seriously, we ran YouGov polls back in sort of February 2000, whenever it was, 2017. Uh, and we said, you know, who do, have you seen anything from the Tory candidate and who do you think it is? And literally, more people said John Lewis than Andy Street. I wonder if that helped him. 
Well, it did at the time. I mean, it's a different story now that John Lewis has closed in Birmingham and he was sort of unable to keep it open. So it's been, it's proved a very much a double-edged sword for him. Um, but there's also, you know, there's there's a lot of Lib Dem and Green voters. I mean, there's about 44,000 Green voters at the last election across the West Midlands. Um, so, so we, you know, we, we are... Um, we don't have the 1.3 million pounds that Andy Street has spent. You know, we have much less than that. So we've had to run a campaign that is strong on every borough, but is aiming at, you know, particular voters who we know, we know where they live, we know their propensity to vote, we know their voter ID. Um, and so, whereas Andy has been able to kind of get Royal Mail delivery of nice colour newspapers once a month, our strategy has been very direct mail based. So basically we have been direct mailing, um, a voter pool for the last um, year, and we're now ringing them. And you're and trying. Now, you know, I mean, now that we've got teams back out on doorsteps, we're now making thousands of contacts a week, which means I know exactly what my data is and what my numbers are at the end of the week. But that, I mean, trying to cover a constituency over a parliamentary term is hard. Trying to cover an entire region during COVID. Is, I mean, it sounds like you're doing very well, but it, I mean, surely it's base. It must, it, it just must be so hard to run a campaign across such a geography in these circumstances. It was hardest when we went back into lockdown in January. So, um, you know, we, Jack, I mean, Jack Jeremy is my, is my campaign chairman. I mean, he is just a, you know, he is truly a hero of the revolution. Um, and so we spent an, an immense amount of time, you know, after I was selected, and just making sure that the, the Labour family was all on the same page. So actually building the unity of purpose across the Labour family, you know, we, we invested huge amounts of time in that. And, you know, I'm very lucky. My running mate, Simon Foster, is, is brilliant too. And we, we, we said, we concluded and we said to our Labour colleagues that we would try and do something that's never been done before, which is to run a fully integrated mayoral campaign so everything that goes out it's me it's simon foster but it's integrated down to ward level so literally the direct mail that goes out there are 228 different versions of it because it's customized to ward levels in order for it to carry the local councillors and the local council candidates on it and so we we philosophically we genuinely wanted to kind of run as team labor team labour aiming to create a Tory free zone in the West Midlands because we are, you know, we are still trying to take out the Tories in Walsall Dudley, you know, and although it may be a little bit longer before Labour wins control of Solihull, you know, there, there is the potential for us to go into a Green Labour coalition in Solihull. So we, that took quite a lot of setup time, but equally it unlocked a completely different level of energy from the entirety of the Labour family which is, is crucial for us because we rely on hand delivery of direct mail. You know, we can't just sort of drop 70, 80, 90,000 pounds with the Royal Mail to get our newspapers delivered. You know. Like um, like every family has its issues, the Labour family. It um, it's yeah. got a new dad in Keir Starmer. Is that the right analogy? I'm not sure. <laughs> or a new stepdad. I'm not sure how, how far I can stretch this analogy, but... <laughs> Is it easier for you now being a, a candidate for an office like this, having Keir Starmer as the leader of the Labour Party, than it would have been having Jeremy Corbyn? Well, yes, because, you know, the truth is in December 2019, you know, that was a setback in terms of the seats that we lost, and there are now Tory MPs in those seats. Um, you know, and although, you know, the public has not seen much of Keir, um, they do respect him, uh, and they do know that he is leader of the Labour Party. 
I wouldn't say they know a great deal beyond that, um, but in a way, it feels to me like politics has almost been frozen for a year. And oddly enough, it's only in the last sort of week or two that it's begun to unfreeze, which is partly why I think you're seeing some of the volatility that we're seeing in the polls at the moment. People are beginning to zero in on this big choice. Politics is back, you know, after a kind of a year off in a way. Um, people were really focused on other things over a lot of the last year, which is why we use that time to just talk to and listen to people. So, you know, the reason I'm able to run on a manifesto that's been written by over 10,000 people is we delivered hundreds of thousands of direct mail and we've made tens of thousands of phone calls to people. You know, people in, in this region are truly sick of the whole music on dialogue um, because we just spend so much time on it. But, you know, that now means I've got a manifesto that I can explain in under 20 seconds, which instantly uh, people can relate to on the doorstep because actually people on the doorstep have helped us write the bloody thing, you know. <laughs> Every Labour leader will face their internal critics who will talk publicly about how they disagree with the direction of the party. Yeah, you're never short of advice if you're leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, the job. But I just wonder about something you said there about people haven't seen much of Keir and they know he's the leader of the Labour Party and, and not much beyond that. Is that his fault? No, I don't think anyone could have cut through um, the news environment. I mean, I, mean I, I, I know this because... You know, we put out three stories, three press releases a week. I mean, you know, what uh, the stuff that we have done that has cut through has been pretty limited because the, the, it's just been one story um, for most of the last year. So, no, I'm not sure there's much else he could have done, to be honest. And during those Corbyn years, a few Labour MPs left, set up the Independent Group for Change and all the rest of that. Were you ever tempted to, to leave Labour in that period? Oh, no, I joined the Labour Party when I was 15. I joined the... Labour Party after the miners' strike. As soon as, soon as soon as I could join the Labour Party after the miners' strike, I joined. You know, and I uh, grew up in the 1980s with the SDP, you know, running off and destroying Labour's chances to form a government. So, no, I, I'm a loyalist, basically. You know, I served on Jeremy Corbyn's front bench. You know, I, I was his shadow digital minister for a couple of years. So, you know, I just happen to believe that the person who members elect as leader of the Labour Party... Is, is the person that Labour MPs have to go and work for and, and support through thick and thin. But even if they're getting investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, I mean, some Labour MPs just said that, that was a, a step too far for them, that anti-Semitism was so rife that they could no longer morally justify it to themselves. But I think you choose your strategy for change. So, you know, we had, when we created the Tribune group of MPs, um, you know, a few years ago, this is something that we talked about a lot, you know, which is what is the right strategy for change? And actually, we thought that we could better address that pernicious evil by fighting from within rather than leaving from without. And I think um, I think history will show that we were right. And where are Labour members now? I mean, you must be in contact with so many of them across the West Midlands. Yeah. Are they... Uh, where is their mindset? Are they saying, like, oh, my word, we've really cocked it up these last few years. We need to move to the centre ground, otherwise we're never going to win again. Or are they still a bit like, well, I liked a lot of what Jeremy said. Maybe we can have one more go with some of that stuff. I think there's a pretty broad church, to be honest. I mean, I think what I mean, I spend three or four sessions a day on the doorstep with activists who some joined under Jeremy. Some were members for much longer. Um the, the overwhelming sentiment for people at the moment is that 
just the, the anger and rage at what this government is doing. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the social problems that are now escalating are so fast. People are just so angry about this. So that is the, the overwhelming feeling amongst Labour activists at the moment. And then they look at this kind of elitist crowd running the country, spending 60 grand on doing up a flat. And it, so, you know, the, the, so I would say that they are very in touch with what is going on and what is going wrong at ground level in our country. Um, they are incandescent, uh, the people who are pretending to run the country at the moment. So I would say they're in a pretty gutsy and determined mood at the moment. And that is partly why you've also got the levels of unity within the party that you, you see at the moment. Certainly, you know, at the, at the level that I work, what I see is a collective effort to, to just throw the Tories out. Um, and that's what we're focused on here. <laughs> Are they prepared to do the, the, the necessary work in changing where the Labour Party is positioned in order to do that, because all that passion and stuff was there under Jeremy. There was a lot of anger. In fact, a lot of anger repelled a lot of people. My, my instinct is yes. I mean, because what I see is a determination to win. And I think, you know, there is a realism about the depth of the defeat in, um, in December 2019. Um, and there is a real recognition that, you know, what Keir does have to do next is crack on with setting out what is that proactive labour-shaped agenda for the future of the country and in a way I do think and I talked to Andy Burnham about this you know the the Labour mayors have got a, a unique role to play in this because you know if you think about take a lesson from Labour history I suppose if you think about the 1931 defeat Herbert Morrison won control of London County Council in 1933 um, and over the course of the 1930s it was London County Council along with a lot of other boroughs Labour boroughs around the country that really pioneered and developed the municipal socialism that then went into the 1945 manifesto. So the 1945 manifesto didn't just sort of fall out the sky. It, it was built on 10 or 15 years worth of experience in local government. And I think there's a real opportunity for us to take the best ideas from Labour mayors and Labour local government in England at the next election and turn that into, turn that into a manifesto that wins. So I think the next, the next two or three years is going to be really important in in municipal life and, and you would rather be serving the Labour Party as a as the Metro Mayor for the West Midlands than, than playing a, a role in Westminster well I'm going to play a role in Labour so you know I you know I, I, I you know I do believe on on I'm fighting for change on many fronts um, I think we can you know that there is a job to do in the West Midlands now but of course, I hope that the ideas that we put into practice will be ideas that help shape the next um, the next Labour manifesto. Um, and that's why, you know, I believe in fighting elections. It's why I believe in trying to govern. It's why I believe in writing books. Um, it's why I believe in working closely with our trade union colleagues and social societies. Because you know, you've got to you've just got to push the thing forward wherever and however you can. And. What about this campaign then? Just to bring it back to this to this mayoral fight, which you know, polling days a few days away. The time is ticking by. I'm sure it felt like a very long campaign to you. Um, do you feel like you're the underdog? Uh, and if so, is that helpful? Well, we are the underdogs because 
we've got a Tory incumbent who has got money coming out of his ears. Um, so yes, we we definitely are the the underdog. But I think as people begin to zero back in on the election and the choice they've got to make, um, the idea that I think really captures people's attention is when we say, look, if you vote for the same old Tory mayor who works for the same old Tory prime minister and the same old Tory government, you know what we're going to get? More of the same. And more of the same is not what we need. And it sure as hell isn't what we deserve right now. So the you know, the, the, the Tory chap here, he's, he's taken a kind of odd decision to sort of try and stand up an election message, which is to go back on track. Let's get back on track. For most people in the Midlands, the idea that we go back to what we had before COVID is a, is a pretty odd notion, because actually we had homeless people dying on streets. We had, you know, families living in hostels. We had unemployment going up. Why the hell do we want to go back to that? You know, so, yes, we are the underdog in this. We are rebuilding the Labour movement from the ground up after what was a pretty seminal defeat in December 2019. Um, but we're full of fight. <laughs> How big a role do you think the vaccine's playing in polling and people's perceptions? Because well, it's definitely played a role. I mean, I think I was looking at some polls on this the other night and you can definitely see there's been a good, you know, five or six point bounce for them and you know you've got to look at the counterfactuals so you know the three the three countries that really screwed up the initial stages of lockdown were the united states uk and israel and actually all three of those countries have now got pretty well organized vaccination programs and um, so they look you know they each of those governments in different ways learned a lot of lessons from what they got wrong the first time around if the vaccine program had gone wrong or gone badly here the tories would be you know low 30s without a doubt so you know the fact that it's gone well you know that has been worth sort of four or five points to them but it's given them a shot in the arm as they you could say that you could say that but what you do notice on doorsteps and this has become a lot more pronounced over the last five or six days is how soft that vote is so you know all local elections to an extent are about differential turnout um I would not be surprised if many of those people who, you know, are often traditional Tory voters decide to stay at home because they just they just can't bear to hold their nose and vote for their slot at the moment. And what's your data telling you? Because I saw a poll in, in the Times or the Sunday Times. Yeah, that I saw that. Put yeah. Andy Street ahead. And I just, with all these polls, I always think, how do you poll regions in this way? Not that I didn't believe it necessarily, but I just thought... It must be so hard to get reliable data at the moment. I mean, does that tally with what your returns are telling you? No, it it doesn't. And I looked at it in some detail because I was quite curious about it. Um, And the truth is, you know, one of the legacies of 11 years of Tory rule here is that we have the worst digital literacy rates in the country. And therefore, it's going to be pretty challenging to do an online poll, which is what this poll was. And then you look at the borough breakdowns and you sort of think, well, you know, their numbers for Walsall, I think, had Labour on nine points and the Tories on 80 points. And you just think, well, that's obviously mad, isn't it? You know, so it, it is. I think it is really difficult to do an online poll in an area that is as diverse as ours, particularly when, you know, a lot of our vote strength is based in the inner cities that just won't get picked up in a poll like that. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I get my data on a daily basis. I know how many contacts we've made each day and I know what our vote share is, which is why I think we're going to win. 
as with any poll like that, it was accompanied by an unattributed quote that said, um, <laughs> so pessimistic are Labour officials, they believe Byrne will not yeah. only lose, but quit politics altogether. Now, even just based on the last 49, 50 minutes we've spoken, you don't, I can't believe you're someone who's going to quit politics ever, let alone anytime soon. Yeah. They'll have to carry me out. <laughs> I just I mean, can't believe. I mean, that has to be a uh, that has to be a made up quote. Uh, no, I'm in this for the long term, you know. And I, as, you know, I, I when we lost in 2010, you know, a lot of my good friends um, decided to, to to quit politics at that stage, um, you know. And I did my soul searching, you know, 10, 11 years ago, and this is this, this is what I think I can best contribute to, and um, this is where I'm going to this is where I'm going to stay and. Stay in battle. Are you quite good at doing stuff like that? When you see stuff like that, do you think, I bet I know who said that? Or do you think that's made up? I don't know, really. I mean, I think... That sounds like that bloke in that office. No, I think, you know, I think when I was younger, I used to care about this stuff. And and, and now I just don't. (laughs) It's been a great feeling. The truth truth is, you know, if, if you work in food banks and if you knock on doors, you know, that's real life. That is real life. That's what keeps you grounded. Now, I have to talk about something, which I know every interviewer says this, and you must dread it. But the reason I ask about it is I just think you were treated so unfairly. And actually, it drove me mad because one of the reasons, one of the reasons I set up this podcast, and I think one of the reasons people enjoy it so much is because we sometimes treat politicians so appallingly. And all the fake outrage about stuff, sometimes I just think repels the public. And one thing I really like is when politicians joke with each other or when you see them getting on. And one of my favourite photos is the one of John Major, Tony Blair and Paddy Ashdown. I think they're at a horse race, not a football or a rugby match or something. And I loved the photos during the Brexit referendum of David Cameron and Paddy Ashdown and Neil Kinnett. And that note you left for, for David Laws, which is a historical joke that politicians in all offices have been leaving notes of that, of that type the generations. Churchill. <laughs> yeah, and, we always, and I was doing A-level history. My history teacher would tell me about this. I thought, oh, isn't that great? I love stories like that, that even for all its harsh contentions, in those little moments, there's just a little joke from, from two sworn enemies, basically, that there's a kind of levity there that I find reassuring. That makes me feel better about politics, not worse. And to have that hung over you, I, I've always just felt that you've been treated so badly for it. Now, I'm sure you're well over all that stuff, but it must have felt so harsh at the time. Well, it's very nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> it was an error of judgment, nonetheless. Was um, it? Was it? I don't think it was. Well, I think you were well, right I suppose, to do it. I, suppose, I mean, when I was, um, you know, when I was writing, I remember looking out over the cherry blossom in St. James's Park, um, and I was naive enough to think, because this is the tradition and the conventions of the House of Commons, that the private correspondence from one honourable member to another remains exactly that, confidential. Um, but, you know, you, you, you can't live your life regretting these things. It damaged the Labour movement. I was, you know, very, you know, sorry about that. Um, and, you know, the, the rest is history. David. Cameron obviously liked to wave the note around and we've all seen what happened to him. David Laws, the man who revealed it, was obviously done for an expenses scandal pretty quickly thereafter. And, the curse uh, of Liam Byrne. 
lost his seat pretty quickly thereafter. George Osborne, who profited from it, he is also no longer with us. So I'm still here. <laughs> make, make of that what you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose in a way you've had the last laugh. I just thought, I mean, that's it. You know, can you ever trust a Lib Dem? I guess that's the, uh, that's the lesson. Well... I've I'll got a friend. I've got so many friends who are lived in. Let list draw the conclusion from that. I just thought it was so but harsh, I'm, but, I, but, I, but I'm still here. And, and, yes, and and what was the public reaction to it? Did it ever register? Did people ever, or did people offer well, you sympathy? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, in Birmingham, people quite like people telling it as it is. Yeah, know, and um, people like politicians. They, they like their politicians to be fairly sort of straightforward. And genuinely, I mean, I know some people in the media don't, don't sort of believe me when I say this, but I mean, we genuinely, this, obviously this was one of the questions that we tested in all of our focus groups when we were preparing our message strategy. And we were really taken aback that people hadn't heard of it. So we were sort of say, you know, the note, the chap Liam was using the treasury. And literally people would say, oh, was he there when Gordon Brown sold the gold? And, and literally more people mentioned gold than note because no one, could really remember it. And so it was a real lesson for us in the truth that the people who tend to bring it up and remember it are Tories. <laughs> and second, most of the general public actually does not follow the minutiae of Twitter and no. Westminster Twitter. It was a very, it was a really salutary lesson. Actually. Must have felt quite nice actually. <laughs> Well, it was a useful reminder about the fact that voters aren't, you know, following the ins and outs of politics anymore. And, you know, the people who do raise it are the same people who raise Gordon Brown selling the gold because they are conservatives. It's just such a shame that there you go. my fear now is that people won't do that the next time there's a change of government because they think, oh, this will be well. Oh, I hope they don't, Matt. <laughs> I hope they don't. I hope they learn the lesson. <laughs> well, I wonder if. You beat Andy Street, whether he will leave a note for you. Well, it's funny you say that. It's funny you say that because, look, this is, this is his accounts here. The, the combined authority that he runs is going broke. Literally, there's a £1.1 billion black hole in the budget. So I hate to be the one to tell people this, but combined authority under Andy Street. There's no money left. It's not, it's not been well run financially. But I, I wonder if he'd... Do you, do you guys, I mean, you, it's not the same this time because you, you're not sharing stages together. You're doing it all over Zoom. Um, yeah, we know each other. Andy and I know yeah. each other. So um, one, of the th uh, one of the books I wrote uh, two or three years ago was A History of British Capitalism Told Through the Lives of Ten Entrepreneurs. And um, we were, I was trying to think, how do you bring the story up to date? How do you bring it into the 20th century? And we thought, ah, well, for a nation of shopkeepers, a good story to finish with is John Speed and Lewis. Um, and so Charlie Mayfield was the chair of John Lewis and Andy Street actually was the chief executive of John Lewis at the time. And they both very kindly gave me access to the John Lewis archives in um, uh, Ogney, I think it is. Um, so no, we know we know each other from from, from a vault. And how's that? He's a very nice chap. I like him. On a personal level, I like him. And have you managed to stay civil with each other? Yes, actually. I think, I mean, you know, obviously I'm someone who doesn't pull punches, but... Um, no, there's been a, I mean, we've done about a zillion hustings on Zoom because 
hustings are now too easy almost to set up on Zoom. So I've done <laughs> plenty, plenty, plenty hustings, which has been good. Um, and yeah, it's 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 been very civilized. But that's it. But that's him. He, he's a civilized guy. Well, that's so. I mean, that is such a lovely um, note to end on because. It's right that politics is robust and direct and, uh, you know, it doesn't pull punches, but still human beings involved. We should be treated like human beings. We'll bleed. (laughs) We all do. Hopefully we don't have to test that theory with direct combat. We we take it as red um, that we all bleed. Um, And good luck in the final final week of the campaign. Thank you very much looking forward to it and either way it'd be great to have you back on in the future yeah Yeah, love to all the best take care cheers Liam well there you go Liam Byrne I am sorry to every Lib Dem listening for that gratuitous um, jibe towards the end about not being able to trust Lib Dems Lib Dem no Lib Dems I hope were hurt in the recording of this podcast or in the listening of it and of course Lib Dems are no more or less trustworthy than any other political party. Well, they're probably more trustworthy than some uh, extremist parties. <laughs> I've got myself in a right old tag there. I'm just apologising to Lib Dems. Um, so Liam was a fantastic guest, and that was a really good discussion about so many things. I felt bad asking about the note, but as this is the first time he's been on the show, I couldn't not ask him about it. But I just think, oh, he must be so sick of talking about it. But it's really interesting that for so many people, they don't even know about it. You know, people like me. Now, equally, I'm under no illusion that very little politics cuts through uh, with the public um, because when I worked in politics, that was also my experience on the doorstep. Um, but some things do occasionally cut through, and it's not unreasonable to think that that might have been one of them, especially as, as Liam points out, <laughs> David Cameron printed it off and wafted it around during the 2015 campaign. So they had at least five years. I'm sure there's a Conservative candidate out there now, probably in the West Midlands, perhaps, um, still referring to that note. So they've had a, a good old uh, run of time with it. But it's interesting that, that that hasn't pulled through in the polling. But also just how you deal with that as an individual to go through all that stuff. And obviously, as we discussed, Liam has been through far worse and it's made him the person he is. and. I thought that was the really interesting stuff. He's been through so much, losing his mum and losing his dad in the way that he did and all the issues around that and just the thinking that he's done about that and how that's influenced him as a person, him as a politician and the sort of politician he is and the stamina he's got. One thing that I think people really admire politicians for, some of them, is that drive. Some politicians just have so much drive and they can get up time and again, you know, through victory and through crucially through defeat and through setbacks and uh, difficult times. And that is something we should all admire in politicians of all parties. So uh, it's taken me far too long to get Liam Byrne on. That said, I have some guests coming up. It's taken me even longer to get on. And of course, that will always be true. Um, so before I slip into the usual cliches about I could have gone, gone longer than an hour. This is someone I've wanted to interview for, uh, you know, quite some time i will uh, i will leave you to it just a few days to make those all important decisions i love elections i hope you get a buzz from it as well i hope you're registered to vote and as i said at the start don't forget if you've got a postal ballot and for whatever reason you haven't got round to it or you got it late and you think you've missed the post you can walk it down to the polling station on polling day on thursday the 6th of may to your polling station or your polling place and 
deliver it that way so that you don't miss out. So um, hopefully everyone listening to this is going to vote. It's going to be a festival of democracy. Um, I've got a few more guests before polling day and we'll do some uh, analysis afterwards, as well as the usual mix of politicians from all across the political spectrum. And do get in touch and recommend anyone you'd like to hear, because sometimes it does just prompt me to think, ah, I haven't thought of someone like that. And that email address, as always, is politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I shall leave you for now. Have a wonderful weekend and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 